Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinmurn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Welcome to Coast Talk Talk. Today, we're joined by Halim Flowers, founder of the Halim A. Flowers Studios and Sato Communications. Halim, it's great to have you on. Been trying to do this for a minute and uh, really excited to hear your story. It's, um, it's amazing, and, and I think the audiences are going to really, really enjoy this. Honored to be here. Um, it's coming at a, at a good time with all of my horizontal product, product line is kind of fully out. So I think this is a great time just to share my personal story and um, my passion just for entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, it's definitely, um, you know, I've been seeing you everywhere and, um, you know, definitely the distinct style of art. And I like the clothes. You got the, you got a lot of stuff coming out. So um, I guess to start, if you just want to start with your backstory, I don't know, wherever you want to start, you know, usually we say, listen, you could start at birth or you could start anywhere in between. I think what's good is it started like my first introduction to self-enterprise. Um, and when I was <clears throat> 11 years old, I took my pre-SATs, scored pretty high, was able to uh, start taking some courses at Howard University at the age of 11. Um, was in the gifted and talented academic program to kind of expedite me out of out of the school system and into the higher education and medical school. And, you know, just due to poverty, um, due to gun violence in my community, not people constantly telling me that I, I would be killed before I was 18. Um, I just felt like I couldn't wait until I finished school to, to make the money to get out of my neighborhood. I felt like I wasn't going to make it. Um, so I started selling drugs when I was 12. And um, what I realize now, like having experience with um, some formal level of higher education to know like business terminology and things of that nature, um, even though the, the product of narcotics was immoral to me at that time, even though now some narcotics are legal now. Um, but for me, it's just like um, I just had this passion to do for myself and to work with what I had. And I think that's why I've been successful today, because at the age of 12 in Washington, D.C., when Washington, D.C. was the murder capital of America and to have that type of courage to uh, to sell drugs with no gun during a, the midnight grave shift hours. Um, it was just some of the same grit that I've been able to transfer into the a legitimate business world and to be successful. So that's that's pretty much my starting to self-enterprise and fortunately or unfortunately at the age of 16, uh, falsely accused of being uh, unarmed, aided and abetted to a murder um, that I wasn't present when the murder happened. But I just was, I wasn't charged with shooting anybody. They just said I was with a friend who shot someone. And um, I was 16. They, they charged us as adults in the District of Columbia. And I went to trial. I was convicted. Um, under the accomplice liability doctrine of felony murder, which states that you don't have to have an intent to, to harm anyone. You just have to be present during the commission of a felony. And um, 
And California just changed that law, too. Um, shout out to California for that. But um, they convicted me, falsely convicted me, uh, sentenced me to two indeterminate life sentences of 40 years of life and 20 years of life. And um, just that academic prowess that I had as a kid, it really saved me because I was able to um, to learn the law on my own and to study Latin. Because you can't learn criminal or civil law in America without studying Latin. So I had the mental capacity to, to learn this new language, to be able to um, to litigate for myself and others, um, not only for our criminal appellate procedures, but our human rights. A lot of our human rights are violated in prison. I was placed in there as a child amongst adults, some of the worst prisons in the country. I've been to California, to Georgia, to New Jersey, Pennsylvania. I've been all over the country. And um, it took me 22 years uh, to get out. And I don't think had it not been for me starting my publishing company uh, when I was in prison and publishing 11 books about my life and my philosophy and using these books um, strategically, uh, not just to make money, but to build the social capital that I would need to get the, the, the uh, right individuals and organizations to advocate for my release. Um, had it not been for that, we probably would have got the law changed. So through through my um, publishing company, me publishing 11 books, pushing the books from prison throughout the world, meeting the right people, developing genuine relationships um, in 2000. Um, I, I went to prison in 1997. And in 2017, we got a law enacted known as the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act, which allowed D.C., Children in the District of Columbia who had received life sentences, it gave us an opportunity after serving 20 years in prison to be able to advocate um, for our release uh, through the uh, through the court system. So it took 20 years for us to get the law passed. We got it passed. And two years later, in March 2019, um, I was released and I was able to um, to begin this three, three and a half year journey that has me here today. Well, that's a that's a lot. And that's a, um, you know, three and a half years at the other end of the spectrum. You've accomplished a lot in the three and a half years. But to go back when you're 12, mm-hmm. so you're 12 and you're being told, hey, you're not going to make it to 18. And so you're like, I got to I got to make some money and I've got to change this. What are you like? How far ahead are you thinking? Like, you know, what are, what are you at 12? You start selling drugs and you're thinking, you know, is there a plan beyond like I, I need to do this today and I'll mm-hmm. figure out what I do tomorrow? Or are you thinking mm-hmm. like, all right. Here's my, you know, three month, six month, 12 month plan to get enough money. And then here's what I'm going to, I'm going to do to change, to change that perception that I'm not going to get to 18. One thing I learned about now understanding economics and understanding like what it means to be in a, uh, the most successful capitalist society in the world and existing within these hyper gentrified cities Poverty and prison creates a desperation that can make you either what people would know to be extremely lucky or extremely um, unsuccessful. It's like no in-between. So when you have a, a child like myself, who from the age of 6 to 12, who heard gunshots every day, who saw people shot and killed and addicted to crack cocaine, Every day, like I heard gunshots every day. It's no hyperbole, is no exaggeration. Like in my community, you heard shots every day. 
I grew up in a war zone. So when you grow up <clears throat> with that type of trauma, you develop a certain level of desperation that has no comprehension for a SWOT analysis or your five P's or long-term, short-term. Terminologies that I learned now, you just like, man, I need to get the hell out of here before I get killed. You know, so it's like, I'm just going to sell drugs because at that time, I didn't know venture capitalists and stockbrokers and real estate investors and art collectors and curators at museums. The only frame of reference that I had for people who were, or at least had the vestiges, the uh, decorum of financial success were the drug dealers. They the ones who had to change the cars, the clothes, the girls. So for me, it's like, okay, let me just get some money to get my moms out of this community. You know, and that's just was my only goal. I didn't care how long it would take, or I'm just like desperate to just get the hell out of it. And I guess when you're desperate, you look at, you know, I grew up very, very lucky, right? And so I, the environment I was born into. And so I look and I see, oh, you know, you, you, you would see, you know, drug dealers and what a dangerous lifestyle that is. But I guess if you're, if you're feeling like it's already dangerous, then you're looking at that and going, how is that any more dangerous than I'm still in the same place? I still have the same risks in this environment and I have less. So is that, is that kind of the step that like the disconnect some, you know, some people have that, that haven't grown up in that environment is like, well, mm -hmm. why would you choose to do that? But you're, what we're failing to understand is you're seeing it from a totally different lens. Like it's not, I'm not going from safety to danger. I'm going from danger to danger with more resources in theory. Right. Is that, is that? And, yeah. That's the thing is like, um, and it's hard for people to, you have to have a very empathetic imagination to put yourself in the position of a child from the age of six to 12 who has become immune and accustomed to gun violence and drug abuse and broken homes and, and communities and schools. Um, we had a unique situation in, in Washington, D.C., where we had the highest murder rate in the country and the highest incarceration rate of any city in the world, right, for like 20 years. So when you have that type of reality and then the elders in the community, the policemen and the teachers are telling you, you're going to be killed before you're 18. You'll be dead before you're 21. Right. It creates this 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 um this unique for me, a unique level of, of desperation that didn't it, it didn't it didn't because fear can give you a sense of paralysis. For me, I, you know, I grew up as an amateur boxer from the age of six to 12, too. So, I mean, I just grew up knowing how to train and how to fight. So for me, it was like I wasn't going to get in the corner and, and tuck my tail in between my legs. I was going to find a way to make a way. And like in America, <clears throat> oftentimes we are encouraged to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But as, um, as Dr. King referenced in one of his um, lectures, we're beginning without a boot. Right. To begin, we, we're starting with a, without a boot to be, begin with. So we have to create the boot, manufacture the straps, and then in the process, once the boots and the straps are manufactured, then we have to have the strength and the doors to pull ourselves up. Right. And that's a lot to ask, and um, especially a child, you know. So, but for me, I just felt like uh, my dad left the house when I was 10. He told me I was the man of the house and I just um, did. I worked with what I had to get what I wanted, <clears throat> even though looking back now in hindsight, it definitely was a, um, a foolish and an immature and an irrational decision. But in those circumstances, 
from my limited perspective in my community, um, it was it was a reasonable choice. Yeah. I mean, I think there's it's easy to look back in a variety of circumstances and say that was a dumb decision. What was I thinking? But the reality is in the in the moment, the majority of people are not making dumb decisions on purpose, you know, whether like, you know, minor severity or or something where there's a, you know, really dangerous outcomes. People, as a rule of thumb, are doing what the best they can in the situation they're in. Um, what so what was so 12 to 16 mm-hmm. was your did you feel like you were on on the path to getting out? Like what what do you, you know, do you look back sometimes and go, okay, if I wouldn't have gotten mm-hmm. this, you know, sent to sent to prison, would I what would the outcome have been? Like where how did you how was the plan going? For me, um I believe in this universal law, you know, cause and effect, what you put out is what you get. Some people call it karma. Um, you read what you sow. So when I was 13, um, going on 14, my mother moved. I was able to help my mother move from my community. And we moved to a, a safer community. We had a house instead of apartment, a backyard, you know, everything that I always wanted. And um, and instead of me staying there, I kept selling drugs because now it wasn't no longer about just getting out of the community. Now it was just like, I'm successful and I can be more successful. And I don't see the reasoning now of me going to school to get a degree and go to college to make money long term when I can make money now. And I think like the universe, when it gave me what I asked for um, and I kept doing what I when I kept doing that act of selling drugs and profiting from people's addictions, even after I saw my dad suffer from a crack addiction. I'm selling the same drugs to other people, parents and relatives and loved ones. I think that's when the universe decided, like, you know what? You're just going to waste your genius as a drug dealer. And you you wasn't destined to be just a drug dealer. This was just something to get your moms out of your community and you accomplished it. But now your moral compass is so skewed that now you want to make this a long-term career. So now what we're going to do is we're going to remove you from society because the society, the community that you're in, within the society, it doesn't have the proper people, places, and things to be the CEO of Holly Mayflower Studios, right? So now the universe, it went to work and it created a situation to remove me. And it was the best thing for me as an individual, not saying that um, something is, 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 is extreme as getting life in prison as a child and being incarcerated amongst adults is a um, a reasonable solution for everybody in my particular lived experience, but it was what need it was what was needed for me to develop the genius in me, the grit in me, um, to become the individual who I am today to impact people and inspire people, you know, all throughout the world. Yeah, and how long did it take you to to like realize that? Are you are you someone who, you know, you 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 quickly survey where you are and and, under, and and look for why am I here? This is the best thing that happened or was it a was it a long a little bit of a long process for you to get to the point where you could like okay, this is why. It definitely um wasn't overnight. When I first went to prison, I was 16, I was incredibly angry just at the system, at racism, at the justice system and police, 
the people who lied and you know testified against me in my case, like just outright just lied. Like I can I can accept accountability for things that I did in my case, but the things that I didn't do, I just didn't understand how a human being would um especially an adult would fabricate a narrative to, to cast a child away. But once I really um as time went past, like within my first five years from the age of 16 to 21, it was a lot of rebelliousness, um, conflict with staff and other incarcerated people going to solitary confinement. But then once I, once I, it was just like, it may be a book like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, maybe As a Man Think of by uh, James Allen. Um, it may be a song that I heard Jay-Z rock. You know, and it's like, damn, seeing him make this evolution from reasonable doubt to, the, you know, the life and times of Sean Carter, volume three. And now he's talking about Rockaway, all these, you know, being the CEO of Def Jam. So it's like all these different influences are like just um, educating me on the power of my thoughts. The individual like Jay-Z showing me that someone is rapping about my real life and is becoming a millionaire rapping about my life and my lived experience. And I was like, wow, um, it just was buttons that was just keep getting hit. And then at some point in the journey, um, I remember it was a Kung Fu movie um, titled Hero and Jet Li starred in it. And it was just like about love and compassion and forgiveness and seeing a big picture. And I remember like when I saw that movie and when I, it was just a series of things, but like the, the apex I remember was reading The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle in 2008. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. And I was just like, this is real. Like, universal law is real. And like, if I really want to change my outcome, first I have to, and this is the hardest thing for most people to do when they do something wrong and it's public and it's made public. People cannot accept accountability for their actions. So for me, it's like, you know, I have to be accountable. I have to have self-accountability. I made a decision to sell drugs. I made a decision to continue to sell drugs. And like, it's accountability that comes with that. And accepting that accountability, I had to learn like how to forgive the people, forgive myself, forgive my dad, forgive my community, forgive, just forgive people and not make things personal because I realized that it was all just universal law, just in, in poetic motion. So but it wasn't an overnight process. It was stages. But I remember like the crystallization being in 2008 when I was 28 years of age, reading The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And then in 2010, being introduced to the uh, the teachers of Thich Nhat Hunt, who was a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who just passed away. And like those teachings and writings really like just put me at to where I really understood my purpose fully and accepted it and embraced it and knew what was to come. Even though I was in the midst of the lines, then um, I, I knew I would be here doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Do you think being so young, like, helped in that process? Because you were, I don't know how to describe it, you know, there's a youthful, like, um, optimism. And even though in, the, in a situation where it'd be really easy to have no no optimism and to just be angry, but do you think, you know, that, that you were so young in your life mm-hmm. that it, that played a role in, in you being able to kind of see this differently than maybe someone who, if this was happening 10 years later and the, you know, the more life experiences they would have had before, they wouldn't have been able to kind of pull around to that point of view. Definitely. Um, 
because, you know, I was very naive. I didn't really understand what I was missing. I hadn't really lived my life. And even, even me returning to society with this personal goal to build a, a brand that would have a multi-billion dollar evaluation, um, by me returning to society with only 16 years of experience in society, I really approached it with a youthful optimism and a naivety that had I now three and a half years later, me looking back, I'm like, oh, if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have been as confident to just stop painting during the quarantine and have the expectation that I'm going to get accepted in the gallery museum world, right? So that that inexperience is, is definitely a, a gift and a curse, and it definitely... Um, it benefited me in having that youthful imagination and the optimistic, you know, expectations. And um, it still does today. I'm only 19 in society years, you know, so I'm real still relatively um, a teenager. And, and I think that's why um, the things that I create, whether it be music or poetry or clothes or paintings and conversations and interviews are so in infectious to people that encounter them because they can sense like, it's a it's a it's a freshness of, of even though I'm 42. It's like it's a it's a joyfulness to us and enthusiasm. This is is very imaginative and um, most people my age are just bitter and just callous and divisive and um, just pessimistic. You know, with the state of the world and I'm not. And I think that's refreshing to people when they encounter it. Yeah, no, it's crazy because you would think that everything you went through you would you would be, but I guess at the same time everything you went through, regardless of why you went through it, you went through it. And so there were probably a lot of times when you thought, you know, well, I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear what you what you thought as far as like, it's probably times when you thought I'm never getting out or no, I'm getting, never going to change. So no. you built this world in your... I never, you know, I never, I've never for not one nanosecond ever believed that I wasn't getting out. Never. Oh, you, you always believed you were getting out. I never, I've never, that's one thing I can say, not for one second did I ever believe that, man, I'm going to die here. I, it just didn't feel right to me. And, yeah. um, and I just never felt it. I mean, I had down moments where it's like, damn, am I going to be here for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? But I know I'm not going to die in here. So I never had that perspective that I would die in prison. I, I felt like I, from the age of 16, you know, my grandfather's about to turn 90. People in my family live long. I just didn't see me staying in prison that long. And it just didn't feel like that was my, my journey. It just didn't feel yeah. like it was my journey. What, um, what would you say to like the, the people when you were 12 telling you, you're not going to make it to 18? Like, you know, like, mm. or, or how do you, how does, it's, it's probably, they weren't saying it. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they were probably saying it, you know, either in a, Hey, this is just how it is. Or they were saying it in a way to try to, shake some sense into you, right? Like, hey, make the most of this. If you if you, if you mm -hmm. don't change something, this is what's going to happen. Right. But it's, but it's you know, we, we talk about in, in much less serious situations that it's it's interesting what what a kid picks up, you know, mm -hmm. which which words or experiences stick with them. You know, when you have, when you have a, sometimes I talk to my parents, they'll be like, you remember that? Or you talk to, you know, talk to my son, right. like, what do you can remember? Mm -hmm. Like, what would you, what would you say if you, if you could go back and be them talking to you, what advice would you have given you based on, not based on, oh, you know, but like 
being aware of what it was like in that situation, what you felt like, what do you think the right advice was at that at that time? I think that what I would say to, because it's people going through that now, but the times are different. Um, I've always been artistically gifted. I've always been a good comedian and things of that nature. So a video gamer. And nowadays, um, it's children who are like creating revenue. We didn't have the internet and yeah. tweets and all of this type of stuff. So when you look at me as a 12-year-old deciding to stop going to school to make money, um, I would just I would just tell myself, like, I understand. I understand your desperation. I understand your limited capacity because you haven't experienced a lot. And the only thing that I can tell you is that I know that you're not going to listen. You're stubborn. You, you're resolute. Um, you're willing to suffer for what you believe in. And the only thing that I can tell you is that um, just do your best to live because the more you live, the more you will learn and the more that you can do. And the advantage that you have is that you're fearless and you're academically sound. And with ability to be able to think and the ability to not be afraid, meaning that to experience fear, but to move through it, you can do anything. You can learn anything and you're, you're not afraid of any challenge. But, um, you know, your stubbornness is going to it's going to you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And but through suffering, it breeds compassion and you can transcend your adversity because you're fearless. So it's nothing that I can say that that's going to change you. It's nothing you could have told me. Are you going to get killed? You're going to go to prison. And I understand that about myself and other 12 year olds. And the only advice I can give them is just continue to continue to man, continue to have conversations with yourself where you tell yourself that you're dope, you're great, you can do anything, you could be anything. No matter what you go through in life, always just tell yourself that you're dope and you can be great, whether you're going through down periods or whether you're going through up periods. And understand that your dopeness and your greatness doesn't lie in what you can do for yourself, but rather what you can do for others. And that's all I would tell myself because I know me, I'm, I'm not going to, I still don't listen. <laughs> I mean, people told me you can't do fashion. People told me you can't do art. People told me you can't make money uh, selling books from prison. It's not even legal. And it was legal, you know, like, so it's like, um, so people, you know, I, I just, I'm still stubborn. Yeah. No, I think that inner voice, I mean, I was, I still, I'm 49 and I have a hard time walking past a mirror without giving myself a pep talk, you know, like kind of along yeah. the lines of what you said, right? It's right. like, and it's not to like, it's not even in a period of like, I'm looking in the mirror, searching for an answer, doubting myself. Mm -hmm. It's just a habit where you've got a little internal chip on your shoulder, I think. And the mm -hmm. best, you know, and it's the easiest way is to talk to yourself about it. But it's also, you know, been fortunate. So there's a lot of things that I, I think I have reason. I was in. I was born in an environment that gave me reason to be optimistic. You know, I had really mm -hmm. a lot of support and a lot of opportunity, and so like that's why. But I also know, you know, everyone always says, and now having a son, you see the same thing of like, you always listen to your elders, listen to this, and it's like there's no way you there's no way to convince the kid that that even though you don't know it until, I mean, it took me till now to, to realize, uh, you know, you're 20, you think I'm getting old, 30, you're getting old, 40, you're getting old, yeah. right? And you, okay, fuck, this is just something where every 10 years, we're going to think now I'm getting old. And then 10 years right. later, you back and, and think you're not. 
what made you or was there someone who inspired you or or kind of took you aside and and, and pushed you to start you know writing while, yeah. while you were in prison? what happened was um in order to you know when you're doing life in prison don't the girls don't want to come see you you know you don't have a release date it's no incentive to connect with anyone intimately in a deep way it's like when you coming home you know so but if you could write good love letters and good love poetry, um, you can you can you can convince um, a reasonable woman to come see you. So I just started out, you know, writing those love letters and that poetry. And and um, and one time I went to an event in prison and I performed one of my poems. And I was like twenty one. I was twenty one. I was twenty two. And the guys in the prison, the older guys was like, man, I didn't know you knew all, because I mean, I'm talking in a poem about, you know, Fidel Castro, Patrice Lumumba, and Stalin and Lenin, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm going into the history, you know, um, and it just like blew a lot of older guys away, and because I was kind of always to myself and quiet, and an older guy told me, he was like, man, you should write a book, and so I, I said, I'm going to write a book. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. And as the universe had it, I bumped into a guy named uh, Minka, uh, Michael Norwood um, from New Jersey. He's a uh, well-renowned jailhouse lawyer. And he also had his own publishing company. He had published two books at that time. And he told me, he was like, um, I can show you how to start your own publishing company, how to publish your books. And um, and that was my beginning. Then when I came out with my first book, he told me, he said, you know, you have to conduct yourself in a way in which you you are a chief executive officer now. You are the founder and the, and, and, and the chairman of your, your board of directors. You are the chief executive officer of your business. And no matter how big or small your business are, you are a brand now. And you can't expect people to buy your books. And then you, 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 you know, because I would play sports and the referee make a bad call and I get mad and get, get into a Dennis Rodman, Draymond Green type of response and and he conveyed that message to me and it changed my whole paradigm about how I perceived myself and how I conducted myself. And f- from that point on until now, I've conducted myself that way. And the, another great advice that he gave me, he told me um, to start writing people. Because he was like, it's okay that you file your motions to the courts and things of that nature. He said, but because um, when I was 16, uh, HBO aired a, a documentary about myself and another juvenile life and it showed all over the world and won an Emmy Award. And he told me, he said, you know, you have an incredible story and you need to start to write editors of newspapers and magazines and share your book and your story with them and to build up your, your network. And um, and that was like the greatest advice I've, I've ever been given in life because I started to conduct myself as if I was the principal owner of something that was valuable and it made me value myself more and conduct myself in a valuable way. And also um, it encouraged me to network with other people who shared that same uh, system of value. And um, that's what I did. Yeah. That's crazy. Is is it, is it a situation where in prison they see someone with potential with skills that are uncommon and it's almost like you know kind of help like like leave you leave you alone a little bit to to pursue that 
versus, you know, I, I have no idea, right? So for me, it's like, mm. I, my perception is that it's like, there's so much out of my control in prison and I, and I only have so much time to myself and, and it, you know, there's danger, danger everywhere. Is it, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but is that something where it's like, you know, there's a respect of like, Hey, you're, you're doing something positive. And so we're going to, we're going to help you do that. Or we're going to be inspired by you, mm. you know, or was, was it, was, I guess my question was, was it easy to, easy to focus on that? Or was it, was there a lot of distractions that you still had to, had to deal with? Well, as far as danger, depending upon what, what security level you are in, predetermines the level of danger. So I started out in like maximum security of federal and state prisons, which are a little more dangerous. Then I was able to get to like medium security, which is far less dangerous. Um, but I never had problems with people like that. Um, outside of like my first couple of years, um, I've never been like robbed, you know, anything stolen from me. I, you know, um, I never had, I didn't have those problems that other people have had. And then as far as, um, the staff, you know, it's dichotomous. So you, you understand that up until Obama became president, the policy of the Federal Bureau of Prisons was to warehouse and not to rehabilitate. During the Clinton administration, uh, they removed the Pell Grants for incarcerated people. So we no longer had access to the resources to get a collegiate education. The furthest we could go is, is just a GED. And then after that, maybe some vocational trades. But um, so, you know, but uh, people's administration and staff who work in the institution are human beings. And, you know, human beings are dichotomous. You have some that's pessimistic and ne negative and some that's optimistic and supportive. And you had some people who worked in the prisons who were extremely inspired by what I was doing and encouraged. And then you had some who saw it as threatening because keep in mind, um, when, you, when you're educated and you study in law, um, some people don't like for you to be aware of the policies that they are governed by and that they are held accountable to. They like to, you know, administer their authority in a, in a, in a way in which they have no checks and balances. So someone like me who was familiar with the administrative procedures and, and, and appellate um, civil and criminal lit litigation, or someone like me could be extremely threatening to someone who wants to um, run amok in a, in a very abusive way with no checks and balances. So I've often been shipped to prisons just because I help people legally. Um, that's how I was shipped to a prison in California. I didn't have any disciplinary infractions, but I was um, transferred just for assisting other um, incarcerated people who didn't have the intellectual capacity to be able to defend themselves. And it wasn't like I was doing anything unjust. I was just holding the staff accountable to the policy. I believe one thing I love about America is that we all are bounded by a rule of law, you know, and I've learned to love the rule of law um, as a human being and just as a businessman. So, um, but that's extremely threatening to some people. And you have to understand that we live in a society that has a culture of killing uh, black children uh, just for whistling at white women, you know, um, so when you have uh, uh, people who have these prejudgments about someone who they socially constructed as a black with a racial category and male as a gender category, and who um, they, because a lot of the staff members are not that formally educated. So you're looking at someone like myself who's reading 
economic books and legal books that's on a scholastic postgraduate level. And they seeing the type of books and literature that I'm reading. I'm, I'm writing the Federal Reserve Banks and getting reports from the different Federal Reserve Banks. So that could be threatening to some people. And to some people, it's encouraging. So I think in life, a wise, a wise perspective for me is to understand that life is dichotomous, you know, and you have your positive and your negative, and they both want to exist. And it's just learning how to manage your negative um, to not harm yourself and others and how to manage your positive to not become arrogant and conceited. Yeah, that's amazing. When, so, and how did you go from, you know, your reading, your learning, your writing to then, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to start uh, Sato Communications. What was the, what was, what were you thinking at the time? And, and what was the goal? A big inspiration for me always was Jay-Z. Um, I remember when I started my publishing company, like in 2004, 2005, um, this was like at the period where he like retired from rapping and he was the CEO of Def Jam. And to see him make that transition from drug dealer to rapper, to rock aware, to, um, to being the CEO of Def Jam, it was like, and I was like, damn, his, his original capital was rapping about my life. I just couldn't get away from it. Like these rappers were getting rich rapping about my life. And I'm like, well, I don't have to write fiction books. I could just rap about my life. My life is, 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 it has value. And seeing uh, Jay-Z and other people in, in, in the hip hop industry taking this, this thing that I grew up with rap and making it a multi-billion dollar global entity. I remember when rap couldn't even get accepted at the Grammys. It wasn't even a category for it, you know? So, and just to see the success that people were having with rapping about my lived experience, I was, I was encouraged and enthusiastic just to write about my experience. And, um, and I knew like, okay, if I could sell drugs, I could definitely sell hope. I could definitely sell inspiration. I might not have the, uh, the opportunity to be in society and the skeleton as I want to, but I can figure out I'm in federal prison. So in federal prison, I'm around people from all over the country and the world. So I could just begin with this consumer base here and, you know, from them, get them to do word of mouth marketing when they go home or through their relatives on the phone uh, in the visits um, to talk about my books. Because I believe my books was good. They were good. They were They were emotional and raw. And it was storytelling in its most authentic form. Yeah. What? How do? You, how did you? So like, well, I guess so. Word of mouth and was that was the way you got them? Got them? Yeah. Out. Word of mouth. Um, I would ask guys in prison, like it was guys from Philly, New York, L.A., New Orleans, and I'd be like, I go to guys because I worked in the law library. So I would ask guys, um, do you have any relatives that have barbershops or beauty salons or small business? And they'd be like, Yeah, if they did. And I worked in the law library, I had access to the copy machine. And the lady that worked in the law library, she was very supportive of what I was doing. So she would let me run like 300 copies of these flyers for my books. And um, and matter of fact, I still had the flyer right here. And um, I'll show it to you. When guys would uh, say that I could send it to their relatives, I would give them like copies of flyers and I would pay for the postage. Oh, no, this is what I would do. I would have my mother. So this is like the original flyer. Nice. Right? So I still keep this here as inspiration. So 
but I would I would um get my mother to send their relatives uh free copies of of my books to ship them flyers to pass out at their beauty salons and barbershops. And the guys who were in prison when they were about to be released, I would give them like 200 copies of flyers and I would ask them, uh, was someone coming to pick them up or was they catching a bus? And if they were catching a bus, it was even better because on the Greyhound bus, they would make all these stops. And I would ask them, could they pass out the flyers for me when they went home? And um, yeah. this was hardcore guerrilla marketing. And um, I didn't have anything else to do shit. I was doing life. You know, so it's like my whole life is dependent upon this, this message, yeah. you, know, you know, so I had that once again, I had that desperation um, that didn't, that didn't have, I had a desperation that had no concern for a SWOT analysis or five P's. Um, it's just like, if I don't get this message out, I'm, 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 I'm a dying here. And every day that was my motivation to stay focused and not to uh, fall into the traps in the prison with gambling and drinking and drugging and thugging um, because I knew I had a life of value that was more worthy of me just being inside of anybody's prison. Yeah. It's almost like you came full circle from the first time, right? It's the first time someone told you, hey, if, if you don't, you know, you, you're not going to make it to 18. But that was mm-hmm. someone else telling you and what their motivations were, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But this time you had it it was more mental than physical of like, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing now that I can make this happen and I can, and I believe in it and I can stay optimistic. But at least what I'm hearing is you're saying, I mean, I'm not going to stay optimistic forever without mm-hmm. a sign. Like I need, I need a sign. I need some progress. Right. That's, that's really interesting. And then you started with writing. Mm-hmm. How did you get into, into art or, or you know, painting and yeah, that kind of art? When I got out, um, first, before I got out, I kept hearing Jay-Z rap about Basquiat. And I know I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, we don't have access to the internet and social media and Google search in prison. So I didn't know, you know, Jay-Z name dropped fashion and islands and cars. I didn't know what he was talking about. So I used to read the Wall Street Journal when I was inside, and they had a small article on John Michel Basquiat. And it blew my mind the way that he was black. That's the friend, like John Michel Bossy. It just sounds like French. And they had a small art. It, it wasn't any of his art, just a small article, a picture of him, a short bio about how he overdosed when he was 27 from Brooklyn. And I remember just thinking, like, oh, so now it made me go back and listen to Jay Z's other songs, Picasso Baby. I said, you know what? I'm going to start reading these articles in the Wall Street Journal about art because. I knew I wanted to come home and live a wealthy lifestyle, but instead of just reading the Wall Street Journal for uh, stocks, bonds, and you know, uh, financial engineering, I had to like, you know what? Let me study the whole culture of wealth: the wines, the cheese, the art, the golf, the vacation locations, and and from that point on, I just started reading about other artists, and this was like in 2016 like three years before I was released. And I said, you know, when I get out, I'm going to go to these museums. So I got out. And when I initially got out, I was really, my source of revenue was just public speaking engagements, uh, spoken word and selling my books. But it would give me opportunities to travel to San Francisco and, you know, L.A. and 
And everywhere I would go, I would go to the museums and see the art. And I was like, I don't really see any art that really like appeals to me intellectually. Like it's visually okay, but it's not, it's not geeky enough for me. It's not encyclopedic enough for me. It's not meaningful to me. And I was like, it has to be a demographic of consumers of art who feel the same way that I feel. And um, so I was released in March 2019. I was, you know, on my grind, getting myself together. And then in March in 2020, the world went on a quarantine. And this is when the world stopped and my world stopped because all of my revenue was from in-person speaking engagements and performance art. And this is when I had a moment to be still and be like, you know what? I'm going to start painting the art that I want to see in the museums and in the galleries. And that's when I started painting in March 2020. How, how far in advance did you know you were getting out before you got out? Was it like the next day? Is it like a month in advance, two months? You know, there's a pretty good chance based on this new legislation I'll be able to get out. Or I already, when, I already yeah. knew when they, when they uh, had the first public hearing in 2016 for the legislation before it was even enacted. I knew I was, I was the poster child. I mean... It was no way that they could deny me. I hadn't had any violence or it was no way they could deny me. I was literally the city councilman told me, like, you are the poster child, you know, like, uh, so there's no way from 2016. It was just a matter of the process, the new law getting enacted and getting lawyers and getting sent back to D.C. And, you know, so uh, from yeah. 2016 to 2019, it was definite for me. I was at the point where I couldn't sleep. You know, the anxiety, just the anxiousness of wanting to get out and knowing you're going to get out the longest three years of your life. Um, but, you know, everything happened in perfect timing, though. Yeah. Did you, were you at a point where you're like, all right, I've been, I've been thinking about this. Mm -hmm. I've been planning for this. I'm going to, I guess you didn't know the date. So I, I was curious. No, if I, you found, were like, I found out the date. Um, I went to court March 15th. 2000, I mean, 2019, and my judge granted my motion. She was going to release me the next month, but the city council asked her because she released me early to testify at a public hearing about extending the law uh, to apply to those who was incarcerated for offenses that happened while they were under 25 instead of under 18, which had already been enacted in California. Um, yeah. So my judge was like, okay, well, he can come back to court next week on the 21st and he'll be released that day. So from the 15th to the 21st of March, 2019, I literally might've slept like maybe 30 minutes a day. I yeah. literally couldn't sleep. I would try to go close my eyes and I would wake up and look at my clock and it would be like two minutes that passed. I just couldn't, I couldn't go to sleep. Yeah. Were you, were you planning like, so that, you know, getting whatever you wanted to get in order so that as soon yeah. as you got out, you could hit the ground running. Only, did, thing, only, only thing I needed, I remember telling my father, said, just give me my MacBook and my laptop and just leave me alone. I just knew yeah. it. That's the only thing I wanted to do. Like, I didn't get out. I didn't party and go to the strip club. And I got my MacBook, my iPhone, and the rest was history. Because I knew yeah. that I had a story. I knew I had talent. I had a ton of ideas. I wrote movie scripts, plays. I have content that I've never released that I've written for uh, 
TV series, fashion. I mean, I just had unreleased literature I never even published yet. Like I had all of these ideas and I just needed to connect with the internet and social media um, to yeah. be able to, to develop genuine, not transactional relationships, but genuine relationships with people to be able to uh, scale my ideas into, into fruition. And I was yeah. on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, everything, you know, nonstop. What were the first, like, what was your, your top priority? You're like, I'm out and I've, you know, been thinking about, you know, this, this business I'm going to build for all this time. Mm-hmm. And step number one is social media, like, to, like creating a, creating a following for yourself. Social media. Um, yeah. My first year, my, my one year plan was um, to not maximize or earn income, but to maximize social capital. Um, but just enough earned income to pay for my, my bills and stuff like that and to save a little. Um, but I wasn't worried about accumulating a lot of cash reserves. I more was interested in like people. I wanted to meet billionaires. I wanted to meet multimillionaires um, to learn how people think and live who have founded ideas and scaled them to a multi-billion dollar valuation. Yeah. I watched your Instagram and I'm like, fuck, I, I should... I really want to go to sleep tonight, but I probably shouldn't based on all of this. <laughs> you got to yeah. rest. You got to rest. You just don't sleep yeah. too long. That's the thing I struggle with the most. I go back and forth on like, nope, it should be optimized for waking hours. But the, for me, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, this is becoming counterproductive. I got to balance sleep back in. And then it's just, it just right. feels like the thing, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And you, I think your body, a- your body lets you know. Yeah. I just think the whole, the whole, what I tell people, people want to know how you successful from prison. I say as simple as this. I'm, I'm, I'm a mathematician. Seven out of ten people who leave prison come back in one to three years with a new case. I'm not going to listen to the, what the people who work in those systems tell me to do in reference to what I'm going to do when I get out. Because people who listen to them come back. We live in a society where 1% of the people control most of the wealth. And if I want to live a wealthy lifestyle, the the model of going to school, getting getting a job, and going into debt to get to get this education to work from someone else doesn't put me in the one percent. So I just say I'm gonna study the one percent. I'm gonna develop genuine relationships with the one percent and figure out how to scale myself to the one percent. Just simple. Uh, it's funny when you put it that way. It sounds uh, it sounds so simple. I think the disconnect is there's a lot of people that won't do the work to figure out. You know how do I get to the 1%. And once I do get to the 1%, do I have the depth of knowledge to, you know, ask the right questions, have to, you know, be in the right places, those things. So that's, that's interesting. When you were, so you've got a variety of interests, um, even just within business and art, right? Do you, when you're in prison and now, are you more like free flowing? Like, you know what, right now I feel like painting right now. I feel like writing right now. I feel like designing a, a, you know, clothing. that's me. That's me. Um, I couldn't wait to get out to get to like technology and to be able to like, you know, I have these ideas like, man, how do I, how do I like all those years of having these ideas on paper. And now it's like, I can just take this conversation and create an NFT collection out of it. Yeah. And, you know, do I can screenshot this picture of you and I and add digital art to it and make another NFT collection out of that. You know, like this collision of 
these two worlds, these two founders, you know, I started selling crack really to get sneakers because I had bummy sneakers and my mother didn't have money to get me sneakers. Right. That was my initial impetus besides getting out of community was to get sneakers. And now I'm talking to the founder of Zappos.com, you know, like the co-founder dealing with shoes, you know, so my mind always works in like that type of creativity. And like we live in a world now where it's though like you can literally design a fashion collection in 10 minutes and have it ready on Instagram and Facebook for people to start ordering it and then drop shipping and get it straight to them. You know, so for me, like to come up in the time where I came up, where you didn't have those opportunities to now that I'm free and out. Oh, I'm I'm lit every day. I'm lit yeah. every day. And it's not about making money. That's the thing. But I tell people like because people ask me, like, how do you feel when you meet the, the people that you meet? And I'm like. They're people just like me, just because they have a, a, a multi-billion dollar evaluation. That's just a somebody's opinion. You know, of of some stocks or some property of their own. So it's like that's not the person that I don't go to. I always tell people I don't develop relationships with people to make it transactional. Right. I go to people to develop relationships. If it's genuine and we flow and we connect, then good. And if we don't, it's good. Right. But no. it's not about what you're worth. It's just like I really want to get information from you to really understand. What's the mentality for me with no venture capital startup, with no work history, with no college degree? How do I maintain the um, the mental health and the lifestyle that can help me to manifest my desire? Because I already have a trillionaire evaluation to me, but my my evaluation of my art and my ideas is just my evaluation. But how do I get this multi-billion dollar evaluation in the eyes of others in a, in a genuine way? I'm not creating any like fictionized uh, narratives about myself. I'm authentically being myself. And when I meet people um, who, who've been successful of reaching these evaluations, I don't, I don't uh, code switch. I don't feel like there's any pressure for me to just be who I am always. And if we genuinely connect authentically, in an authentic way. They like my art. They like my sneakers, my hoodies. They like, hey, that's dope. How can I help? People always say, how can I help? And I'd be like, just be a friend. We don't have to figure out like how you can just be a friend. And then our friendship, I'm going to be like, hey, I'm working my album drop next Tuesday, October 11th. Yeah, well, how are you promoting this? Like, I'm, I'm winging it. Oh, I'm going to introduce you to such and such and such. So that's just how it happened. Um, I know that I bring my human value to all my interactions, I bring my personal uh, story of transcending adversity. I believe that all people have adversity that they're going to need to transcend at some point in their life. And people who understand that they value me and people who, who enjoy creativity and authenticity, they value me. And through those value, um, through alignment of values is how we can develop genuine relationships. And just out of that, those genuine relationships, opportunities just come to make money, you know, yeah. and it's not about money. It's about for me, just getting to this point, just to show people where I come from, that it can be done. Cause I'm not like Jay-Z. Jay-Z was able to be out here. So people see Jay-Z and they see Barack Obama and Diddy and Kanye and they go, okay, we see that it can be done, but people from my lived experience, 
have never seen anyone who's done the type of time that I've did at the age that I've done it, and to still be able after decades of incarceration to come home and to do it in a complete legal way. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I think two things that, you know, most people don't have the opportunity to find, right, is the, I mean, I always, you know, even when you're in a, in a business, right, and you're someone's, they report to you and like, so you have some control over their, it's like, I always say, hey, you guys, you what you're seeing, your point of view has to be the most important thing to you. You should never, you should never think that like, my opinion is more important than yours or there might be some decisions where we go my way because because I get to make that decision, but you should mm-hmm. never see it as like, um, oh, he's got a better opinion or he knows better. You have to, we have to all understand that each of us is going through the world as the most important person in our world. Like it has to be that way um, for you to get that, for you to get that belief. So I think, you know, when you, you know, listening to it and looking back, it's like you, one, learn a valuable lesson. You, you listen to what other, other people told you things were going to be like. And, and kind of you figured out where that was going to take you. And then you had time. Now you had time to think about what happened, what you left alone, right? So you, the only, you have to go in your own imagination, your own thoughts, which is the other thing that a lot of people can't or don't take the time to slow down. A lot of people are like, I could do that. I could do this. I have so much to say. But day-to-day life, just they either don't prioritize it, they don't want it bad enough, or, or there's just too much going on where they don't have the luxury of being able to say, let me just stop and think. Like I was, I was imagining when you were talking about, you know, I had all this content and all this stuff. And I was like, shit, if I go away for like three or four days, I come back just like shot out of a cannon with like, oh, I have so many ideas. Sometimes I just go to sleep. You know, I wake right. up the next morning, like I had one idea. So I think that, you know, that's, that's, uh, it's amazing that you took that time to develop this library of content, this perspective and take ownership of like, hey, this is all mine. And that's the most exciting part, right? Mm-hmm. Most people, people don't have that vision and this, this uh, library of content that's theirs. And so they don't have control. So you came out with, I've got, you know, the same confidence I had, the same beliefs I had. I'm stronger now. And I've got all this time where I was able to really refine like my point of view, which is probably why you can go from, well, not probably why, it is why, right? You can go from writing to, to books, to art and it's not that you, um, you know, part of it is trying it and not and, and being fearless, but part of it is you had a point of view, you know, you had a, you had a vision inside of you. And that's the, um, you know, that's the most people will sit down and be like, I'm gonna start painting. And they either got to look at what someone else did and base it on that, or they just shit, I don't have time and they don't go. So that's, uh, it's pretty awesome to see. Um, what, what do you, what do you most enjoy? What are you most passionate about with the fashion, the art, music, writing, What's the one that's like, that's your favorite? Conversations. Conversations. I'm always asked that question. I always tell people, conversation is, conversations are, are a form of art. Through conversations, people come up with an idea that, you know, you know what? We ain't rocking with England no more, man. We're going we gonna to sit here and draft this Declaration of Independence. <laughs> right? Yeah. That, it was a conversation, a series of conversations. Um. So I just think that conversations are so underrated. Um, people don't talk anymore. They don't value very, um, very. Come on. They don't. They don't value the uh, the art of having ideas and genuinely expressing your ideas and how you really feel 
uh, without fear of judgment with other critically, uh, with other analytical thinkers and allow them the opportunity to uh, dissect how you articulate what you feel and your ideas and, and to keep throwing them back and forth at one another. And, and what I've ex- learned the most from people who are materially wealthy and immaterially wealthy is they value conversations. They don't, they don't have like a lot of frivolous conversations. They talk a lot. They listen a lot. And through conversations, they get some of their best ideas on how to move forward in life. Um, whether it's what, what venture to invest in or, you know, how do I deal with this custody battle for my child? Um, they have conversations with high level thinkers who they respect. They get advice and they, they take that information along with their own individual opinion. And they, they, they make what we think is the best decisions. And like we began with earlier, when you stated that I don't think anybody just wants to make the wrong decision. It's just that what happens with a 12-year-old child when he makes a decision to stop going to school after scoring high on his pre-SATs um, to start selling drugs is because he's not having conversations with other high-level thinkers. And he's having conversations with himself or herself and other people who have a, a, a very low frequency and a very limited perspective. And so they, we have this situation in these communities where we get these um, traumatic outcomes in perpetuity. So uh, with me, it's like using social media, uh, even though I might can't directly conversate with pe- everyone who has my lived background experience, but through social media, I can do these daily posts to encourage them to, to show them where I'm going and where a passport can take you, where your visual art can take you, where genuine relationships can take you, where um, having confidence to evaluate yourself first. That's my whole dr- trillionaire gentlemen's club movement. It's just about um, me and a couple of guys in prison um, in Atlanta. We just we just came up with this idea like, you know what, man? Money is nothing but a promissory note with no intrinsic value. So who is anyone, who is an individual or system that have more authority to tell us how much of these promissories our books or our writing or our fashion or our intellectual property is worth. This is our IP. So we like, man, we the trillionaire gentleman club. You know, not excluding women. I just happen to be in a men's prison. Um, but it's just the idea in is that's my movement. Idea is ideas are our greatest currency. We give so much value. Um, in particular, we are people who come up in poverty with no access to um to capital and resources. We give so much value to money, these Federal Reserve promissory notes. And then when you study economics and you see like private individuals can write promissory notes to one another. And the, the only value in these um, Federal Reserve notes is the, is, the, is the value that we give it, the credence that we are willing to accept it for exchange for our goods and services. Then you can take back the power to put your estimation on what your net worth is worth. You know, in a society that tries to um, correlate your net worth with your self-worth, you know. So for me, it's just, it's just I have the audacity to evaluate myself, appraise myself, and to put the work in to justify my appraisal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What would you, um, I guess, to, you know, last couple of questions, what would be your advice to someone who wants to change their 
their inner voice. You know, they want, they, they either feel like I'm just like, I don't like the way I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. or I know I need to change the way I'm thinking, or I'm just, I can't find that sense of peace and clarity on who I am or, or what I should do next. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give people on how to, how to, how to lock that in? Every, everything needs uh, food, nourishment to survive and even negative thinking patterns. So the advice I would give them is look at the, uh, look at your diet. What do you watch? Who do you follow on social media? What, what shows you watch? What radio you listen to? What type of food do you eat? You know, what type of people do you conversate with? What, what type of conversations do you have? All of these external uh, realities are your diet. This is your consumption of your reality. And if you make a willful decision to choose to follow pages on social media that's conducive to negative thoughts about yourself and others, you conversate and you congregate with people who um, have a pessimistic, negative, fatalistic habit of engaging with yourself and others, um, then you're going to feed that diet, that hunger inside yourself to have these negative conversations about yourself. And you need to change your diet. Me, I don't waste time. I don't um, I don't watch videos with people getting killed. Like everyone knows that about me. I don't like to see videos where people get hurt bad and to laugh about it. Like I don't um I don't follow pages on social media that inform me about uh you know how many people are killed, who got shot or robbed this day and you know um, I intention, I'm very, very strict about my diet. I don't listen to music that's always talking about killing and disrespecting women and you can't trust nobody. And, you know, I'm very aware of vibrations and frequencies um, of people, places and things, in particular art. Like art is very, whether it's visual, whether it's sound, performance, it's very powerful and very influential. And um, I'm very uh, cautious about what I allow myself to hear and see and from a consumption perspective. So that's just my advice to anyone. Um, everything needs food to survive. Honestly and humbly assess your diet that you're feeding yourself. And um, if you have the willingness and the humility to identify things that are unhealthy, to yourself that feeds that negative um, self-dialogue with oneself or soliloquy, as I would say, then you have to change your diet and you have to have enough love for yourself where you love yourself enough to value yourself and understand that negative self-talk is not doing anything but creating cancers inside of me. It's toxic and it's only eating me from the inside out. It's killing me slowly or quickly. So if you have a love for yourself and you really believe that the body is the temple of God, just that that love for life and that appreciation for living, it will give you the strength to be able to, to change your diet. And I don't care how close I am to somebody. If I'm like, hey, I love you. But right now, uh, our relationship is not healthy for me. And out of love for myself, I have to limit out in the actions because I don't think you're intentionally trying to harm me. It's just that the conversations that we have in the actions, I get negative incomes 
within myself. And I want to empower and enrich in myself and get more on the asset instead of the liability side of my relationship with myself. Yeah, no, I think that's, I never really thought of it that way as everything being a diet. It's so easy to connect. I shouldn't eat that, right? But it's hard to um, to relate that to everything else. What, um, you know, I, th- I think that's, I think that's a great place to leave it. I think that's a, it's a great lesson. I was thinking the whole time you were talking, I'm like, I don't know how to just, eat. I think, you, I think the way I would, you've got a, a calming intensity, which is, I was sitting there thinking, this guy's very intense, but he's very like calm, you know, and, and he, and he makes you feel calm because he's, he's, it's a, it's a simple message delivered with intensity, but, but very clearly, which is, um, and then of course I went off to, fuck, I got to stop just like rambling and frazzled and this, that, and the other. I got to get, I got to get that. I got to get that calm, uh, calming intensity. Where can people, um, follow you? Um, you know, you got so much going on. Where can they, they hear about what's next and, and, and find out about all that? At Holly, I'm a serial. I am a serial Instagrammer. That's where you will find me at the most. But looking forward to being in the metaverse. You know, I'm a big, uh, you know, I just believe in decentralized autonomous organizations, um, people being able to create community around commerce. And um, it's just such a dope time to live in, man. Like, you really can have like a group of, I was just so discouraged from being a nerd. As a kid, I remember you had the movie The Nerds, and like nerds were looked at as like weak, and it was just so, it was so looked at as so counterproductive, you know. So to see that people could come together now and in, in their authentic self, and be able to create organizations and community and commerce and economies, and I know that's not related to your question. People could find me at Holling Flowers, H A L I M F L O W E R S on Instagram. But man, you know, um, I'm just so excited about being alive and like the possibilities with the metaverse and the internet and, you know, 5G and Unreal Engine number five. And like, we lived in a blessed time. I know people are conditioned to see like what's wrong, but there's so much that's right. If you were born in 1980 like me, there's so much that's right about the world right now. Um, Not to say there's not some things that can't be improve. I'm just, I'm just extremely um, enthusiastic about living. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I think it's incredibly inspiring what you've been through and the mindset you've been able to maintain through that and what you've been able to accomplish. But I think equally inspiring is what's ahead of you, right? You're, you're, you're the perfect combination of things to, to, to maximize this new economy as, as creators and an individual as a business. So it's going to be really, um, really exciting to, to watch. I, I discovered you through, through flip the uh, collection you did with them. And I yeah. had no idea yeah. on the backstory and everything. So I was like, yeah, it was, uh, just, just, I was introduced to flip through John and John was my first art collector. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. He is literally everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> He's a great guy. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Um, well, yeah, like to, uh, you know, let's do this again. Sometime, anytime, and it'd be great to, you know, stay in contact and, and, and throw ideas around, but I really appreciate you taking the time coming on. I think listeners are going to be, you know, really, really interested and excited um, by this conversation. And I think it'll be a, an inspiration for a lot of people. So October 11th, my first album, rap and comedy 
uh, the album is titled Ultra Preparedarian. It'll be on all streaming platforms. I'll send you the link. And um, I just wanted to create music for, for people who, who want to live a healthy and a wealthy lifestyle. And not to hear rap music has to be about killing and drilling and dealing, you know, just about healing and living, you know, so in abundance, yeah. in abundance and not scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, no, looking forward to that as well. And um, yeah, anyone listening, uh, rate, review, subscribe, share this episode. I think a lot of people would like to hear it. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>